Um, Brian and Dana are out of town, and typically what we've done in the past as we've kind of started a new year together as a church, you know, typically in the spring and the fall, we're in a particular book, and we'll go through um, the entire book together as a congregation. But in January, we do something a little different. We just hit, we kind of hit the reset button on some pretty big themes um, in the church, in the Christian life. And so last week, uh, Brian talked about wisdom and planning. We looked in the, um, in the Proverbs. This week, we're staying in the wisdom literature, and we're looking at the Word itself. Um, so with that being said, if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Psalm 119. Um, if you open your Bible, Psalm uh, 119 is almost directly in the middle. So just kind of part it as, as close as you can to the center, and you're pretty close to Psalm 119. We're going to be in verse 105, and we're going to go through verse uh, 112. So just eight verses to look at this morning. But as you're turning, and as we're getting to our place in the text this morning, C.S. Lewis, when he talks about this psalm, he, he, calls, it, he calls it the tapestry. Um, and the question is, is why? why? Why does he call it a tapestry? Because there are some psalms, when you read them, that they're so emotive, and they're so raw. It sounds like as they're experiencing either you know, this, this great tragedy or, or this great blessing, it's almost as if they're writing in the moment. It's so raw. It, it's so fresh. And, and C.S. Lewis says, that's not happening here in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is too deliberate. It's too manufactured. When you look at these words and the careful choice of them, when you look at the parallelism, um, there's nothing haphazard about this psalm at all. It's a tapestry. It's beautifully woven. Not only is it, is it a tapestry, but it's a, it's a big one. Uh, this is the largest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119 is. It has 176 verses in it. And the question for us this morning is, you know, with 176 verses, um, you can cover a lot of ground, right? And 176 verses, we can, we can get through a lot of material. Interesting thing about this, this psalm, the largest chapter in the Bible, is this psalm is about one thing. And one thing alone. All 176 verses, including the eight we're looking at this morning, are about one thing. Well, what's it about? Let's find out. This is Psalm 119, verse 105 through 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Spirit, we've wandered again into your territory. And though we read, and though we take in unless you are working within us and opening our eyes and strengthening our heart and giving us ears to hear, we listen in vain. So Spirit, help us. Attend to us in our spiritual darkness this morning. Be to us a light. Grant us direction. Grant us hope and joy and peace. According to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I got to see something last week that um, I hadn't seen in a while, and, and it was nothing, you know, incredibly profound, nothing YouTube-worthy. It was just, again, something I hadn't, hadn't, hadn't done in a long time. Paige and the kids and I, we, we got to fly to Texas uh, last week to spend a, a couple days with my family. And one night a, a, after dark, um, that was redundant, wasn't it? One night after dark, um, isn't it always dark at night? 
Um, one evening after, after the sunset, I walked out into the backyard, the back pasture, uh, and I looked up. And I was kind of taken back. I was surprised. I, I forgot just how many stars there really were in the sky. There's a whole lot of them. And, you know, and it was just it was unhindered, unencumbered. You know, from horizon to horizon, there were no trees. There were no clouds. The moon wasn't out. It was just, I forgot. And it's, and it's breathtaking. Um, and we may say, well, you know, so what? We can walk downtown, you know, Main Street. And on any given night, we might see a couple stars, maybe even a couple constellations. What's the big deal? Well, the problem is, is, is here in the city, like when we're, when we're in Greenville, we have something that you don't have out in the country, right? We have light pollution, right? When you're walking down Main Street, you've got buildings, you've got trees, you've got Christmas lights in the trees above you. Um, and then we have all of these lights. I mean, every 100 feet, we have these you know, buzzing yellow sodium lights here on the street. And all of these things combined, what do they do? What do all of these man-made lights together, what, what do they do for these, these eternal standards that have been in the sky long before us? It kind of drowns them out, doesn't it? You don't get a view like you do uh, in the country. Well, so what? What does it have to do with us this morning? Well, we're, we're considering from this psalm this morning God's word, something that's, that's timeless, that's, that's eternal, that's been a standard uh, for his people for a long time. And, and if I could put it in the form of a question, wouldn't it be nice if it was as simple as walking into your backyard and looking up? Wouldn't it be nice if it was that simple? If that's all we had to do to get a little clarity? You know, if you needed some direction, if you needed some insight, if, you, if your joy meter was, was at a two and you needed it at a nine, wouldn't it be great if it was just as easy just to walk in your backyard, look up, and just go, there it is. Got it. But it's not that easy. Why? It's because we have this, 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 these lights that are buzzing, these, these half-truths that are drowning out the eternal truth. We have half-truth pollution. You know, what are we supposed to do about... Uh, marriage. What are we supposed to think about sexuality? What are we supposed to think about law and grace and church membership? What are we supposed to do about all this? I mean, don't you have the buzz of about 12 different sources telling you what you should be doing? Wouldn't it be nice at one point just to look up and just go, enough with the sodium lights of half-truths. Just give me the timeless, eternal things. Give me some clear direction. I feel a little lost. Wouldn't that be great? Well, the psalmist this morning says it's, it's, it's about that good. There is something, and that though we, we feel confusion, and that though we feel oppressed, and that though we feel pulled in a number of different directions, there is something, in fact, just one thing, the psalmist says, can provide that for you. You know what a roundabout is? We don't have roundabouts here, except if you live in Gower. Gower has a roundabout. But roundabouts are intersections in Europe, right? There's not a 90-degree angle in the thing. You just get on it, and you just go in circles. And sometimes you can get stuck on them. Sometimes life feels like a roundabout, right? You're moving, but you're not making progress. Ever felt that way before? What the psalmist here is saying is there is something that's going to help you kind of get off the roundabout and get you going in the right direction. It's timeless. It's eternal. It predates you. And, he, and the question is, okay, well, what is it? He says it's God's word. It's his word. So we're looking at three things this morning as it pertains to God's word. Three descriptors here. So if you're taking notes, these are my three points um, this morning. First, he says God's word is a lamp. It's a light. Talk a little bit about what that means. Second, he says it contains life. And I want you to make sure you get that word in there. Put contains life. Okay? Scripture isn't life. It contains life. Um, and then lastly, it is itself a, a joy. Okay, so light, life, and joy. Okay, so first, a, a light. What does it mean that, that Scripture, God's word, is a light? Look with me again at verse 105. Notice how the psalm begins. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light 
to my path. Now, I didn't know this about pirates. I, I figured this out um, recently. My son's fascinated with them. Um, I didn't know why pirates wore a patch. I just thought it was because a battle wound, got an eye poked out. That's why they have a hook and a, you know, and a peg leg. It's just a battle scar, right? But it was actually for a, a pretty practical reason. And here's how it would look. If, if, if pirates were about to you know, take hold and, and, and lay siege upon another ship, they needed every advantage that they could give themselves. And so pirates would wear eye patches. And this is where it would come in handy. Because typically, if, if, you're, being, if you're being attacked by a pirate, you can do one of three things. You can jump and die. Or you can be captured and die, or you can hide, right? And so what people would do is they would go below deck and hide in the dark, you know, sort of corners and caverns of a ship. And so what a pirate needed to be able to do was have night vision instantaneously. So when they walked underneath the bow of a ship, they could see clearly. And so what a pirate would would do, we're talking about pirates. This is going somewhere, I promise. He, He would just switch the patch from one eye to the other, giving him what? Instant night vision. So when he's walking underneath the ship, he can see everything giving him an advantage. And what the psalmist is saying about this passage this morning is that scripture, much like into this, this patch to the pirate, it gives us night vision. It gives us the ability to see in the dark. It gives us clarity. It gives us understanding. It is like a light. Now, another question. What is the psalmist here? What is this author presuming about the world in which we live in? Does he presume that we live in light or does he presume that we live in darkness? Look back again at verse 105. And let me, let me ask it again, but just in another way. If we were to leave church today, and it were not raining and gloomy and dismal as it is today, but if it were a sunshiny day, and it's, it's noon, it's high noon, the sun's out, everything is bright, uh, it's the brightest part of the day, well, if you drove past a guy squinting, holding a flashlight, uh, a- acting very, very cautiously, what would you think about that person? High noon, bright fullness of day. You'd probably assume, I think there's a screw loose. Why? Because you don't need a lamp. You don't need a light at midday, right? When do you need a light? When does a reader need a lamp? It's in darkness. It's where there is no light. And so what is this psalmist assuming about the nature of life and where we are? It's not that we live in light. It's that we all live in darkness. And so the question for us this morning is, is, okay, what does he mean by, what do we mean by living in darkness? And, And this is something... The psalmist not only comments on, but this is something we find throughout Scripture. When we ask ourselves, what is man's condition that he is born into? In particular, it, as it pertains to his relationship with the Lord, what is, what is our capacity? What is our ability? In the Old Testament, one of the major themes about this condition is illustrated by this word darkness. We live in darkness. We have no light. We stumble around. We stub our toes. We step on Legos. It's pure darkness. Um, when you think about the creation uh, of the world, the world began in darkness until what? Until God created light. Light came second. There was first darkness. Fast forward, when we read the story about Egypt uh, holding Israel captive, when the Lord sent these plagues um, to Egypt into Pharaoh's land, remember what one of the plagues was? It was darkness. Illustrating what? This is the condition in which we live in. In relationship to God, we live in utter darkness. Job... Is a th- the theme of darkness throughout that book? Just go through Job uh, sometime in the near future. That's how he describes his condition. Paul does the same thing, except he uses a different word in the New Testament. He says, he kind of agrees with the psalmist, but he uses something different. He says, we're, we're, we're dead in our relationship to God. We're not, we're not in a coma. Uh, we're not unconscious. We're not sick. He says, we're dead. And what that's communicating to us is dead people can't talk, dead people can't walk. We can't do anything. We're helpless. 
we've got nothing. And so Paul, together with the psalmist here this morning, when we're looking at the condition of man, something we've got to, we've got to launch from here this morning so that this passage makes sense is, what is our presumption about the world in which we live in? It's this, is that we live in darkness. We live in darkness. Okay, so the question is, why, why is this psalmist so excited? Why is he talking about joy? Why is he talking about pleasure? Um, it's because even though we live in darkness, there is a light. And what is this light? I mean, look at all these, these nouns back in the passage. Verse 106, it's, it's God's righteous rules. Verse 107, it's his word. Verse 108, it's his rules. Verse 109, it's his law. Verse 110, it's his precepts. Verse 111, it's his testimonies. Verse 112, it's his statutes. We have about seven or eight different descriptors here. What is it in the darkness that brings us light and brings us direction? What is, it, what is our aid in this world in which we live in? It's that God has not been silent. And that he has sent a word. He has sent a law. He has sent a testimony. He has sent stories to grant us insight, to grant us an understanding, and to show us a path. What deism teaches us um, today is, is that God creates the world and he spins it into creation and then he just takes his hands off and says... I want nothing to do with it. Why is the psalmist so excited? Because he says, it, it, that's not true. That's not what the Lord has done. He has sent a great light. He has sent a word. We're not without hope. We're not without help. We're not without direction. And that's God's word. It's a light. But he says, this light needs to be used. Light must be used. Um, look with me again at verse uh, 107. He says, not only is God's word to us like a light, but it itself uh, contains life. Verse 107, I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Give me life according to your word. Now, something the psalmist here is, is warning us about, and what we need to hear this morning is this, um, is this fallacy of proximity. See, we have this temptation uh, to want to kind of use you know, God's word as like this, this, this amulet. Um, like this, this medallion, you know, it, it, it kind of serves as like, um, you know, like, like a bulletproof vest for us. It keeps bad things from happening to us and, and makes bad things go away from us. And what the psalmist here is saying is, is there's something much deeper here that we, got, that we have to understand. And when I grew up, we had, you know, in our house, we had this adage, maybe you've heard it before. It's, my, my folks used to say, uh, money's just paper until you spend it. Anybody ever, ever else hear that from their parents or from another generation. Um, money's just paper until you spend it. Insinuating what? Um, money's not money until it's actually back in the market and it's being traded for, for other goods. Um, and what the psalmist here is saying about God's word is, is, is kind of the same. Scripture is just paper until you're, until you're spending it, and, until you're using it. And so we ask ourselves, to what capacity? What does it look like to really use, embrace, digest act upon it in this passage because look at all the verbs again back through this passage. Look, look, look again with me at verse 106. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your rules. Verse 108, teach me your rules. Verse 109, so I do not forget your law. Verse 110, but I do not stray from your precepts. Verse 112, incline my heart to perform. You see all these verbs, these are active verbs. How do we respect and how do we use this light? Because, I mean, really, light is meant to be used. How do, we, how do we use it? Well, Jesus gives us a great illustration in Matthew chapter 4. Um, 
It's, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He goes in the wilderness, uh, being led by the Holy Spirit, and, he, and he's tempted by Satan himself. And you remember what happens. Satan tempts him in three areas. He tempts him um, with his ego, he tempts him with his power, and he tempts, him, he tempts his stomach. Um, and those are three big ones, um, especially, especially for guys. Um, and, and what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? Do you remember what he says? Jesus says, Men shall not live by bread alone, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes scripture. And what we've done in the past is, you know, we've, we've just kind of used, used scripture and said, This scripture's life, and it can block bad things from happening to me. There's something a little bit deeper going on here. What Jesus is saying is, There's a whole bunch of noise. There's a whole bunch of truth pollution going on right here. And what I'm doing is, I'm focusing my eyes on the true light. I'm drowning out everything else. I'm getting some clarity here. I'm going in this direction. Not this direction. And he says, I'm going to believe my father's words. And I'm going to act on it. So no, I will not turn these stones to bread. Why? Because that's not what we live on. We live on God's word. And so the question for us this morning, as as we're kind of considering this law, I mean, we have this this word, and and for most of us this morning, it's sitting in our lap, or it's, it's on our smartphone. We have, you know, Bible apps now, and... We have some of it on our desk, and you know, maybe some of it's taped to our, a window or a refrigerator. The reminder of coming from the psalm here this morning is that Scripture isn't life. It contains the words of life, and we've got to use. It's got to be used. It's just paper until you spend it, right? You can't just have Scripture. You can't just have the light. You've got to use the light. We've got to do it. It says not only is, is the word like a light to us, giving us direction, not only does it contain life, not just the good life, but this eternal life with God, but it also brings a joy. Look with me at verse 111. He says, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Your testimonies are the joy of my heart. Over the Christmas break, I was reading an excerpt from a biography written about Louis Armstrong. He's the uh, famous jazz musician uh, from last century. Um, Very gifted guy, very unique voice, otherwise known as Satchmo. Um, And his wife wrote a biography about him um, after he passed away. And one of the sections uh, in in the book is a story about um, Louis Armstrong's first Christmas tree. Now, we all grew up with, with Christmas trees. Most of us did from, you know, from childhood. We always had one in our house, whether artificial or, or real. Uh, Louis Armstrong got his first Christmas tree when he was 40. And he was so captivated. He was so enthralled by it and the light that it produced and just the beauty of it that as he was touring and kind of going from concert to concert you know, over the Christmas holidays, he asked his wife to bring the tree with him. And so every morning she would get up and she would set up the Christmas tree, turn the lights on, and when the show was done and they were packing up, she'd She'd take it down, and this is a live tree, not artificial, it's a live tree, and it would take him with it to the next stop. She even said there's one night where he couldn't go to sleep, and she woke up, and she found him sitting at the end of the bed, and all he was doing was just looking at the Christmas tree. He was so captivated by it, by the beauty of it. And the question for us this morning is, is you know, and I'm, I'm a huge Christmas fan. I love Christmas trees. I tried to get as many lights on that thing as I possibly can. It's a big deal in the Patton House. So I'm not knocking Christmas trees. But is that all we got? I mean, is that, when it comes to captivating and enthralling us 
and capturing our attention is the best thing the world has to offer a Christmas tree. And what the psalmist here is saying, no, and a, hard, and a hearty no. What brings you joy? It's God's word. And is he just talking about temporal joy, momentary joy, or a collection of, of just joyous moments? He says, no, this, this joy is so deep-seated. This joy is so good, and it is so pure. Look with me at, at, at verse 107 and 110. He says, affliction can do nothing to it. There's no snare that can take it from you. This joy that Scripture provides, this life, that, this eternal life that Scripture provides is so good, it is so captivating, so enthralling, persecution can't touch it. Look with me at verse 107. I'm severely afflicted, but give me life according to your word. Verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Justin Martyr, before he was um, burned at the stake, he walked up to the to the stake that he was about to die on, and he kissed it. You know why? Because he believed this passage. He believed that the word was light, and it brought him into fellowship with God. It gave him eternal life. So he could look at his persecutors. He could look at the stake and just go, what can it take from me? Yes, you may take my soul, you may take this body, but I have life everlasting with God. And so he kissed the stake. The psalmist also says this, this word is so good. Not only does it produce joy, but he says it's his heritage. Look with me again at the beginning of, of verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. What does he mean? What is he talking about? Well, over Christmas, um, my oldest daughter, Lacey, turned eight. Her birthday is the day after Christmas. Um, and a long time ago, my great-grandfather, whom I'm na- named after, um, he had a specific tie pin he used to always wear. This is back when you wore tie pins. We don't do that much anymore. Um, and, and, and one day he decided to honor my mother uh, and, and by giving this to her. It was a special gift to my mother. So he took the tie pin, had it made into a ring. This tie pin has a little, you know, this black a stone in it with a jewel on top. And it's, you know, and it's set atop this, this gold ring, n- nothing fancy. And he gave it to uh, my mother uh, a long time ago when she was a, a small child and, and what was so precious to her about this wasn't the stone. You know, it, was, it wasn't the, um, the, the black um, the stone in the middle either, nor was it the gold that the ring was made out of, but it was the story behind it, right? It came to her at a specific point in her life with a specific message. Um, and it was an encouraging uh, gift to her. And so what she wanted to do with, with all of her granddaughters is, is pass on a, a gift to each of them. And my mom has many granddaughters. And so this this go this go around this birthday it was it was it was Lacey's turn so um, so here's what my mom did she didn't just give her the ring and just say here and that cool she said here's the story behind it here's what it meant to me and here's what I wanted to communicate it to you and here's uh, above all else what I want you to hear on your birthday that you're special and that I love you what's so precious about this is it the metal is it the jewel is it the stone no but it's the story behind it that's a real heritage do you hear what the psalmist is saying here he's saying look. As I stare death in the eye, because I know that one day I'm going to be gone from this earth, if I have something so precious, so captivating, and I can only give one thing to my children, what would it be? And you know what he says it is? He says it's God's word. It's the promises of God. If I can leave you children with one thing, if this can be the heritage, if this could be what our family is known for, if this is what could be passed down from generation to generation, it's not a piece of jewelry. 
It's not a reputation. What is it? It's God's eternal and unchanging word because within it contains light and life and joy and I have nothing better to give you. It is my heritage. It is the heritage of God's people as well. It's that good. Well, what are we supposed to do with all this? How do we make sense of all this this morning? Well, um, there's a couple elephants in the room I want to identify one or two before we close. And, and maybe you've already, you've already sensed it. Um, you know, this is, this is a psalm. And again, this is one of the longest psalms, the longest psalm, longest chapter in the Bible. And we're 21st century you know, believers and churchmen and churchwomen. And we have the luxury of, of reading the psalms, studying the psalms, reading commentaries on the psalms. That's not how they treated the psalms back in the early church. These were songs Psalm 119 had a tune. It had a melody. This was somebody's favorite hymn in the church. They'd walk into the church building, oh, we're doing Psalm 119, oh, this is my favorite one. It was sung. And so as good students of the Bible, we ask ourselves this question when we come to this psalm, what effect would this have if we sang this song? 176 verses about one thing. About what? God's word. About his scriptures, his testimonies, his stories his laws, his precepts. What kind of effect does that have on us? Did you sense it at the beginning of, of the sermon this morning? I did, and I've been wrestling with it all week. As the psalmist is describing his love, his affection, his, his enthrallment with the word, did you, did you read this and hear this this morning ago? It's not me. I don't feel that way. If I'm honest with myself, I may not be able to bring myself to tell anybody else, but if I'm honest, I don't feel that way. And that darkness that, we're ta- that we talked about before, it starts to kind of set in and you just go, I feel helpless. Because if that's what a Christian looks like and that that's what a Christian's supposed to do and that's how he's supposed to view the law, I'm more concerned about other things being my family's heritage. It's not, it's not God's law. There's other things that bring me joy. It's not his word. There's other things I use for light and it's certainly not the scriptures. I thought this was supposed to be good news, <laughs> right? How is this good news for us? Now look with me again at verse 112. And before we read it, consider this. Chronology is so important in the kingdom of God. Notice the chronology here. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Notice here what the psalmist doesn't say. He doesn't say, by the power vested in me and with all of my might and with all of my energy, dadgum, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. Me, myself, and I, watch me. And I'm going to do the Superman. Watch me do this. That's not what he says. What comes first? What comes before obedience? What comes before true obedience? What does he say? He says, I incline my heart. What does he mean? Well, what, he's, what the psalmist is saying here is, is before we as, as, as followers of Christ and readers of Scripture, before we can offer true obedience uh, to God, something has to have, happen. Our hearts have to be pierced. It has to be pierced by something. And the question is, what is it? What is it pierced by? Well, remember Matthew chapter 4, what Jesus did. Remember what he did out in the wilderness with Satan. What we celebrate in the Christian church is that that just didn't happen once in Jesus' life, but that, was, that happened throughout the entirety of Jesus' life. All, all 33 years of his life, he dotted every I. He crossed every T. He took the law 
And he said, because we can't do it. It's because we come to Psalm 119 and just go, that's not us. That is not who I am. That's not how I act. He said, because you cannot do that. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to be perfectly obedient. I'm going to come under temptation. I'm going to come under scorn. I'm going to come under opposition. My joy, my life, my security is going to remain secure. And you know what the great news is? The great news is this, is God says that obedience, that perfect record, that is a gift to those who are willing to receive it. That perfect righteousness, that spotless obedience. What pierces the darkness? And what pierces our heart? And what moves this beyond just understanding? And what captures our affection? Is God saying, though you don't deserve this, and while we are still enemies, here is a pure and spotless righteousness, and it's yours. Take it. Rest and receive in it. Because until our hearts are pierced, we can't offer true obedience. And oh, how we get this backwards. Even if you're outside the church, and even to those inside the church, this is, this is what we do. We, we, we flip-flop the formula. We're just like, Lord, are you watching? You watching what I'm doing here? You like that? All the time ignoring Christ's obedience for us. And that's not the pattern. And the psalmist wants you to know that. First, our hearts must be pierced by something. And what is it? It's Christ's gift to us. Only then, and only then, can we offer true obedience to God. Why? Because you can obey without loving, right? Ask, ask the soldier about his drill sergeant. You obey, but you don't love. But in God's economy, we get both. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. And so when we look at the law, and when we look at obedience, we're going, why wouldn't I want to do those good things? After what Christ has done for me, after what he has offered me, this is no small gift. This joy, this security, this life, it's the least I can do. Sure. I love the Ten Commandments. It's hard. Yes, we wrestle with our flesh. It's hard. But I want to follow it. I love it. To get there, the hard heart has to be pierced. Until then, we remain under the wrath of of the law. Friends, may it be said of us as a church, as a community, as a congregation, may we be known for our true obedience. May we not be known for good deeds and doing the right thing, but may our, our obedience be fueled not by pride, not by ego, but may it be fueled by Jesus Christ, the one who pierced our hearts and offered us this pure and perfect obedience. Why? So that we can love and honor and obey him out of joy, out of peace, out of security. So secure that persecution can do nothing to it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, only you can make it so. You promised us that your word will not return void. That it can do what it says it can do. That it can bring life. That it can bring light. It can bring direction. It can bring hope and security. And Father, your word says so many scandalous things, it's hard to take in sometimes. But may we be known for our trust in you. Uh, May we cast off our fear and anxiety. And Father, may we be known for our obedience. May we be known for our deeds done out of love um, and pride because we are children of God and because you have done such great things for us. May it be so for your name and for your glory alone. Amen.